Welcome to the bonus material of How in God's Name Should I Vote? I'm Andrew Palmer, and in the midst of pulling together the content for the podcast, I got to speak with some really inspiring people. In today's episode, we get to chat with Ruth Powell and Mark McCrindle. It's very, very likely that even if these names are unfamiliar to you, their work won't be. Mark is the principal of McCrindle Research, and Ruth is the director of the National Church Life Survey the second largest regular survey in Australia after the national census. Ruth and Mark have deep research-based considered perspectives on Australian life, particularly how Christians engage the world around them. Now, statistical data can have a paralyzing effect on people. The numbers seem gargantuan and the outcomes can sometimes rock us. And of course, research does need to be interpreted within the context, which can be fraught. But far from being dry and abstract, Mark and Ruth's work paints a really quite beautiful and hopeful picture for Christians in Australia. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with both of them. So, if you've ever wondered why different generations seem to interpret the same situation so differently, maybe Ruth and Mark will cast some light. I hope you enjoy meeting them. Ruth, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Mainstream media loves to talk about the decline of Christianity in Australia. Is it true? Well, yes. Uh, Overall, we know that churches are in decline, and we've been watching that happen over the last decades. Really, the high point in Australia was the 1950s. Uh, It wasn't great before then, and it's been going down since. However, I have to say, we've got to be careful because the decline story always makes the headlines and it's an easy one to tell. Some of the things we're seeing at the moment is um, it's a plateauing story. Uh, Church attendance has actually plateaued in Australia. And also, not all churches are in decline. And you've got very different patterns when you actually dive in and look at different denominations. So if I can give you a couple of examples... Um, while the big churches, the Catholic Church and the mainstream Protestant churches have declined over the last few decades, it has been offset by significant growth in Pentecostal movements. They doubled in over 20 years and they continue to grow. Now, it hasn't managed to get it so it's, um, you know, uh, stopped the decline, but that's a very different story that's happening as well. And there's been this real sort of shifting in terms of which, which denominations um, hold their place. The Catholic Church is still the biggest denomination in the country, with around half of all people who go to church go to Catholic parishes. Um, but perhaps a, an example of how things have changed is the next largest denomination, we think, is Australian Christian churches, who used to be Assemblies of God. They are now followed by the Anglicans. Uh, followed by Baptists and the Uniting Church. So that's quite a change to the nature of church life. And overall, we still have 16% of Australians who are in church at least once a month. Does that changing of uh, identification with with branding around Christianity in terms of the rise of Pentecostalism, mm. does that also correlate with a changing in relation to our influence I think it's it's an interesting question. Uh, The Catholic Church clearly still has a very significant place and also is obviously in the current uh, context, the Catholic Church has some major um, issues of trust 
but it has to address in terms of how Australians see see that part of the church, as do other churches. So I guess that's a particular challenge for the Catholic Church in the wake of the um, the Royal Commission on uh, institutional responses to child sexual abuse. Uh, influence of the Pentecostal churches. There are, they, they have a particular character. They, ha, they are movements and there are so many independent Pentecostal churches. And so I think it's different. Uh, influence is, is tricky when you have lots and lots of movements, um, you know, flowing around as opposed to a very large institution. So I think it's a bit of a wait and see. And do you think it's likely to play out in a more conservative or more progressive sense of uh, how the church engages with Australia? Firstly, we see that in the mainstream denominations, it's, it, there is an older profile. Younger people are tending to go to uh, evangelical denominations and those Pentecostal movements that I, that I mentioned earlier. I guess if we play it out to the question of how people vote, um, <laughs> how it affects is overall church attenders tend to be uh, quite conservative overall in their patterns. So most church attenders uh, would vote for the coalition, Liberal and National Coalition. Um, however, over the last decades, that has actually declined and the numbers have dropped off. But where they've gone is uh, they've moved across to um, other parties such as Family First or Australian Christians or other independent parties. Um, so there's been this shift away from uh, the Liberal National Party, if you like, but to other conservative groups, the, the proportion of Australians, who, Australian church attenders who vote Labor has been extremely consistent over the last few decades. And one of the things we can see is the younger you are, the less likely you are to vote Liberal National. So just to give you an example, people in their 20s, only 24% of church attenders vote uh, Liberal National compared to 57% of people over 70. So there's something going on with age. I think that's a whole interesting discussion. The old adage that if when you're 20, if you don't vote Labor, you don't have a heart. And by the time you're 40, if you don't vote Liberal, you don't have a brain. That doesn't <laughs> seem to be, that dichotomy doesn't seem to be playing out quite the same any, any longer. No, again, we've seen in terms of the impact of age on those who vote Labor, it's very stable. Every age group has this, about the same proportion, roughly, who vote Labor. And you see over time, about the same proportion of attenders vote Labor. So it's a very stable group, that one, which is interesting in itself. And the dynamic you know, movement of, uh, of voting patterns is moving around sort of where they locate themselves with regard to positioning across a range of conservative parties. So, again, the overall message is if you go to church, you probably are more likely to vote more conservatively. But I actually would say, again, my observation from just having a look at this information is it, it is less about being Christian, because obviously Christians vote, in, you know, vote for all parties, and it's more about other factors that seem to actually drive um, people's voting patterns. So it is their age, their denominational affiliation. And I suspect if we actually looked at which, you know, whether you're in the city or the country or things like that, that those things which predict how other Australians vote probably have similar impact on how church attending Australians vote. Does the research show that there are issues 
that concern church-going Christians in Australia across the board, or are they also similarly um, differentiated by age? What concerns church-going Christians? Well, at one level, it's the same as everybody. They're humans. <laughs> um, you know, issues of security, of well-being, making sure there's a future for their kids. Um, you know, basic life needs, of course, uh, are there and will impact how people, um, you know, what they're concerned about. Everyday life. In terms of if you're thinking public policy issues, one of the things we know is that most church attenders would support advocacy. 80%, 8 in 10, say Christians should work to change the structures of society to create a more just society. Now that sounds fantastic, but then you say, what issues do you care about? How should this advocacy happen? And you suddenly see this incredible diversity across the churches. Here's another example. Um, 83% say there's a moral obligation for Christians to be active about environmental issues. But when you look at the, you know, your behaviours, what do you actually do? What does your church do? How often do you talk about it? It's not as strong as that attitude. Or here's another one. You know, 62% say churches should do more to promote reconciliation with First Peoples. And then you go, so what have you actually done? And you get about the same, six in ten going, well, I haven't actually done anything. So there's this gap between what church attenders say should be happening and what they believe uh, they should be concerned about and what they're actually doing personally. So that's a bit of a challenge, that, that gap. Now, on a more positive note, we've got about three quarters of church attenders who say Australian society is improved by... Um, immigrants coming in, that they add to Australian society. And what we can see also is this really big increase in, the, in churches offering migrant ministry and intentionally engaging new arrivals. Um, you know, 44% of churches say, we've done something to provide support for recent arrivals in the last 12 months. So I think that's probably a better story in terms of um, saying we believe that welcome to the stranger, welcome to the new person, the newcomer to our lands is important and churches are actually getting on board with doing things as well. It seems to me that the church has a high aspirational regard for issues of social justice, climate, refugees, uh, Indigenous Australia, so on and so forth, but there's a deep disconnect when it comes to actively engaging in a deep and ongoing way. Is that driven because that's what's happening socially or is this something that has uh, uh, become part of, if we for a moment think speak about the evangelical church where there has been an emphasis on a privatized spiritual holiness as opposed to a sense of moral obligation. Mm. Oh, you're raising some very big questions there, Andrew. Um, yeah, these are sort of theological questions. They're historical questions. I can probably describe, you know, what's going on because I'm just observing what's happening. I think part of what goes on for Christians is... Um, they are called to love God and love their neighbor. And so you see that aspiration in going, I believe that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, the widow, the orphan, the, 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 the alien, the foreigner. Um, that is what is taught and that is the aspiration as you describe it. Um, church attenders see that the role of churches is in that space to challenge injustice, to actually give meaning and direction to life. Um, part of the problem is the wider community is saying to the church, mm, we're not so sure. 
we're not actually interested in you doing that work. What you should be doing is feeding the poor, that you know, looking after the poor, um, providing a good place for us to have weddings and funerals, but please don't bother us with your talk about challenging the structures. So we have this, this dilemma at the moment where the wider Australian community is pushing back on a range of things, not only that sort of question about challenging injustice, but also things like, hmm, we're not so sure, church, that we want you to be providing Christian education. Okay, you've got a great history, you've, you've led the way in providing education to our society, but now we want you to back off. Um, and certainly when you come to questions about evangelism, Australians are saying to the church, we actually don't want, we don't like the idea that you're going to come and try and convert us or tell us about meaning and direction in life. Whereas, of course, church people are saying that's our core. That's our core business. We have the good news to share. So there's a that there are places where sort of, if you like, Christians are a bit at odds with with uh, the wider community. for joining us today. Great to be with you. I guess as a social researcher and as a Christian, you're keeping your eyes on faith-based trends in Australia. We have a, a federal election coming up soon. What do the current trends tell us in terms of the state of Christianity in Australia? Well, just by looking at the census data, we see that Christianity is not the dominant worldview that it used to be in this nation. In fact, we saw just in the five years from 2011 to the 2016 data, the proportion of people that said Christianity on their census form went from 61% down to 52%. That was the biggest drop of any area in the census and of any area in any census ever. So there is clearly a, a trend line there of people not as likely to identify with Christianity now compared to ever before. Now it's still just over half of the population, but uh, that was quite the decline and quite the rise in no religion going from 22% to 30% of people saying, nope, none of the above, uh, that's not for me. So in loose terms, that's that's 2.5 million people. Exactly. Yeah, well, in five years, in fact. Um, so, so that's quite uh, quite the drop. Now, we know from the National Church Life Survey data that the number of people attending church over the last 10 years is unchanged, about 15% of the population. So that gives us a real, I guess, barometer as to the proportion of Australians who are active with their Christian faith in terms of church attendance, about 15%. And what does that mean in terms of Christians in uh, the political uh, conversation in Australia? Is there a change there? Well, there is, uh, because in a sense, there's cultural Christianity, which used to be that dominant perspective. Even if people weren't church going or wouldn't call themselves Christians, they would say, yeah, my religion, my background is Christianity. That cultural Christianity, as defined in that census question, is evaporating. And so that means that even if the proportion of people that are active in their faith is roughly the same, the the protective factor around those people, the warmth around those people is shrinking. And so there are colder winds at the door of church or religious ministries, and uh, there's more pushback to Christianity than used to be the case. Not not wholesale pushback, and again, still with half the population somehow or other identifying with the Christian faith, it's, it, it, it's not an anti-Christian era, but certainly secularism is growing. We're more culturally diverse, and more people are saying Christianity is not for me. Is that trend 
explicitly within a younger demographic or is is it across the board? No, if we look at the data, it's particularly with the younger demographic and particularly with the long-term Australian demographic. It's actually the uh, in the ethnic areas, uh, uh, culturally and through generational perspective, where we see people more likely to say Christianity. So, so people who have been around for a while and who maybe have had a Christian heritage, but it hasn't been active for them, are wandering away or more likely to say, you know, none of the above. We did our own research and found that about 14% of Australians are spiritual but not religious. So they don't fit into any institutional category, but it doesn't mean that they don't have a perspective. And, you know, if we look at then, we've got about 10% of Australians are uh, religious of the non-Christian uh, realm, so uh, other than Christianity. So all up, you've got about 70% of Australians that have a religious or spiritual perspective. Um, so it's not as though we are totally secular. We don't believe in anything metaphysical. But the fact that, well, it's not the, the case anymore that the, the only or dominant worldview is that Christian worldview. That's that's no longer the case here. If we could drill down for a moment into some of the generational trending, what uh, differences are you seeing uh, in generations as it pertains to Christian action in politics. Is there a, a shift going on there as well? There is. And you've got a lot more diversity of how younger people activate their Christian faith and activate their political involvement. And you see this broadly, you know, apart from those who might identify with Christians, you know, young people may not see the only democratic action they can take as voting. In fact, they're active politically even before they're of age to vote uh, through online activism, through participation, which we haven't seen for some time, but have seen again recently of young people protesting, of getting out on the streets, of, uh, of, of raising their voice uh, against what, what they don't agree with and, and really feeling the empowerment that young people today do have. They're connected up globally. They're influenced by events around the world rather than just having a local lens. And they're prepared to uh, not just take the traditional view, not just to listen to the authorities or experts alone, but to back themselves a little bit and to say, well, you know, we are inheriting this future. Is this the direction we want? And if it's not, they're not afraid to get up and to shake the cage. There seem to me to be two very distinct responses to um, the reality that school children had a strike for climate action. <laughs> yes. And those two very divergent views were children shouldn't be involved in the political sphere at this point in time and they're being brainwashed by what they're seeing on social media and then the opposite view that this is fantastic that children are involved uh, in the political process as um, as minors but still recognizing that the social media platform seemed to play a crucial role in in organizing mobilizing broadcasting that information could you speak into how you see social media shaping the way that particularly young people are engaging the political process yeah well it definitely gives them that platform of sharing a voice of influencing others you know right in front of them and they are technologically savvy they are empowered through the devices at a young age they are more aware of the emerging platforms than the rest of us and so really do drive not only the technological platforms but the social connectivity platforms they have more time and larger influence networks than the average adult all of that gives them prime power and the digital and the social is the prime power of today so even regardless of whether they're old enough to vote or not they have political influence does it go so far as to affect us at a values level as well? It does, because we have come to a point in society where 
we've changed from the past. It used to be people looked up to the older people for the direction, for the lead, and everyone wanted to be older than they were and more mature. Now we're in a youth-obsessed society, for good and ill, and everyone is trying to be younger, and everyone is trying to understand and connect with the younger generations, and they have power beyond their years. And so their voice is listened to. They often do drive the popular culture. They are the target market that marketers want to connect with, as I said, powerful on social media. And parents listen and are influenced by their children, who often have a different perspective and bring in some different ideas to what they have been shaped by and with. So you know, young people have a seat at the table these days, and you know they're not afraid to use that. It seems to me to be uh, a polarising uh, communication method, and it occurs that uh, the the level of um, aggression online in online conversation is uh, unlikely to be replicated in a face-to-face conversation without that degenerating into physical violence. How is that affecting us? It's affecting our society in big ways and you know we, we see it all the time, don't we? Each of us as individuals, we see it in our society. It's affecting young people in a big way. I mean, they are in the formative years, the more vulnerable years, and they we just did a study on bullying and found that the majority of young people, more than six in ten, uh, have experienced cyberbullying. And often, you know, with that goes some face-to-face bullying in their social context. So, so that's a real challenge. They see the best of technology and its empowerment. They see the worst of technology and its isolation. Now, we call them the iGen uh, because the internet and the iPad and everything, but they're the iGen in terms of isolation and individualism and some of the negative consequences of that. So the technology, while empowering, it also allows people to hide behind the anonymity, to converse in a way they would never do face-to-face in terms of impolite ways, to say the least. And that can be you know, dangerous for young people if they follow that pathway as well. Do you think that that has affected the way that our political discourse now occurs in Australia, government and opposition, uh, policy framing and the public conversation? Definitely. You know, I'm sure we've all seen it's more of a shrill debate than it used to be. There's more... Uh, playing, the, trying to find the gotcha moment and, and playing the person rather than the policy and trying to get the grab. And people know the power of social media and the power of the mainstream media to get the little grab and to replay that. And that has, you know, impact politically. And so that's the game that we're in politically. It's shorter term. It's, uh, it's focused on, I guess, getting the headline and getting the attention. And that by its nature creates more of an aggressive and shrill tone than the broader nation-building bipartisanship that you know we used to look for and uh, and I guess accept. The other side of that uh, conversation is uh, policy via Twitter, in terms of what what some of what we see coming out of the United States of America, and I don't think that it has landed quite in the Australian political. Um, uh, foundation quite yet, but it seems to me that as I look at uh, um, diplomacy and policy being driven by social media, that policy on the fly uh, seems to be an incredibly problematic space. Yeah, that's true, Andrew. Democracy as we know it has changed. And you can get even in Australia, government come out with a policy or at least 
run a policy idea up the flagpole to see how it floats. And then there's a hashtag campaign. There's a, a backlash on social media. And suddenly you'll see that policy quickly be pulled down, be revoked, be be walked back. That's the reality today. So it's not just about voting on legislation or being able to vote for who we do or don't want to represent us. It does happen through social media. And we've seen that therefore, it's not just the traditional voters who have influence. I mean, for good, it gives those who are Australians but don't have uh, you know, the eligibility to vote, uh, opportunity to share their views, but also it opens it wide up beyond our nation to corporations, to others who have nefarious reasons for getting involved in our policy debate. So it's not altogether good, and it certainly has changed the way politicians and policies are managed. It seems to me that it's a it's a very direct way of engaging democracy, which on at one level at least could be... Um, a positive because it engages other voices. The other side of that is that it appears to me that it erodes trust in the competence of our public officials. Is that true? Yes, and trust is the is the value of the era, isn't it? And we've seen the trust that we looked for, you know, be uh, downtrodden in so many ways. It's uh, it, it's a, a key issue that uh, is just not around as much. And and I think that's part of the problem. Uh, we don't trust our banks and we don't trust our political parties or politicians. And even, you know, we've seen royal commissions in other areas as well, institutions, churches and the like, and trust is at a low ebb all around the place. So, you know, it's important that those who do stand up as national leaders, try to build that trust, try to operate in a way of authenticity and try to engage and, I think, lead a debate that is uh, going to bring out the best of us uh, rather than getting into the combative nature that sometimes social media creates. Another side of social media is the idea of the echo chamber, that we hear the voices that uh, the algorithm puts before us. Do you think there's truth to that? Yeah, there is. You know, we're in a world of AI, of... Uh, computer algorithms that uh, serve up to us in our search what is based on previous searches or, or based on our demographics or based on who we are or where we're located. So that happens around social media as well. It happens around through our own social media channels around around uh, you know the, the, the views that we are hearing. And it does therefore limit the perspectives that we get. Uh, we sometimes uh, think that social media is a global channel and opens up the world, but in so many ways it does echo back to us, you know, our own views, and that that can be damaging to uh, you know broadening the the possibilities and a more open debate. Hundreds of thousands of young people will vote for the first time in the upcoming federal election. They've grown up with mobile phones in their hand. How do you think that's shaped them? Well, it's made them. Yeah, digital in terms of tool that they use and visual, you know, not just the written form, because that's a lot of the content that they consume. And they're certainly socially influenced through that platform. They're global in the outlook uh, and they're mobile, you know, in terms of not just the device, but when and where they access content and where they'll work and study. It's a different generation in so many aspects. And that is clearly going to inform uh, how they view and shape how they how they vote. Uh, so it's these Gen Zs that'll be voting for the first time uh, clearly are, are shaped in a different era to early voters of the past. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's made them more informed and more global in outlook. But in a lot of ways, it's uh, made them a bit more superficial in some of the aspects that they look at. And they're not consuming mainstream news. 
And we've seen the danger of the social influence and indeed the fake news and the fake friends and everything that goes along with that. So you know, there's powerful tools that they have, but it doesn't automatically increase the quality of the political debate or the information that they are served. Are they savvy or naive? <laughs> well, I see them as pretty empowered and pretty tuned in. I mean, they're just a few clicks away from any piece of information on the planet. You know, that's a powerful tool that they have, powerful access to information. And they're broader in terms of, again, the scope that they bring. You know, it's not just the local little issues. Um, so, so all of that is in their favor. But um, they can more easily be manipulated uh, and the social media influences or the, uh, the, the likes and the views and the hits that start to inform, you know, what must be therefore a, a solid view is, is a little more lightweight than the political debate or the cerebral engagement, maybe the, 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 the strength of an idea that, that used to dominate uh, polity. It occurs to me that as uh, Christianity uh, loosens its grip in Western nations like Australia uh, and globalisation and the capacity to engage information from a broad variety of sources of varying qualities uh, is more and more available that the the social uh, conversation for the emerging generations is miles ahead of even where my generation was, let alone my parents' generation. How do you see that playing out, say, in terms of uh, of the political spectrum, in terms of, of issues like uh, views of sexuality, gender orientation, fluidity, etc., um, as opposed to some of the more fixed ideas of uh, generations that have uh, come before them? And how do you think that will apply in voting? Mm. Well, these are really contemporary issues and the debate, the policies, the areas of interest for this younger generation have changed quite quickly around, as you say, you know, marriage and what defines it or uh, gender fluidity, you know, the, these issues, environment, of course, you know, 30 years ago, these were not on the radar, you know, for previous generations, for the parents of this younger generation today. So, so it's changed very quickly and therefore it's hard to get a handle on these things, if you like, a, a solid sociological handle, let alone a spiritual one. Um, so it's it's a tougher realm and they are more open to the influence based on the current zeitgeist or perspective or influence rather than maybe a more solid and timeless perspective. It does mean that spiritual insight and I think, you know, a biblical perspective and, and even broader solid ethical frameworks that they can be given or, or empowered with matters more um, in, a, in a world of shifting sands and fast changing debate. Do you think a schism is coming between generationally on, on these issues, including environment? So the, the three key issues of, of environment, uh, sexuality and human relationships, uh, they seem to be markers of generational difference and dislocation. Uh, is that likely to bring a schism in terms of the Australian church? It, it is bringing a schism generationally and you know, even analysis of the a postal vote last year on marriage definition showed that by generation, younger people overwhelmingly in favour, the older generation slightly not in favour of the change. So, so, uh, and, and we find this in our research all of the time, almost whatever the issue you've got, when you look at the votes or the perspectives by generation, a clear trend line, your younger people far more on board than the older or the vice versa, depending on the issue. So the generational experience, life stage perspective is is quite different you know, across the age range. Um, and, and that influences not just how we vote and society, but the church as well. So I think you know, churches need to understand the impact of generational change and 
how we connected with the Gen Xers 20 or 30 years ago, us, Andrew, uh, is not going to be how they'll connect with Generation Z. And, and, and what the mainstream view of the 20th century is, is certainly not a given today. So I think it's up to Christian leaders and influencers today to really understand these shifts and, and realize it's a lot more shades of gray. Uh, it's not as straightforward or linear as it used to be and a little bit more uh, discernment, I would say, wisdom, I would say, um, uh, social skill and engaging and, and having the conversation matters more than just laying out uh, factual, uh, evidential uh, truth in the way it might have been done in the past. It's been a fascinating conversation, Mark. One final question. In the spirit of Anthony Green, are you prepared to call the federal election? <laughs> well, as a researcher, I can say don't believe the polls uh, because uh, as we've seen at a state level, as we saw in Brexit in the UK or Trump in US, you know, the polls get it wrong uh, because uh, they've got their strengths, but it doesn't always play out. So, uh, you know, watch this space. Uh, things don't always go of the way of these polls because people change and, um, and mindsets change. I think it's going to be... Uh, quite a uh, an interesting debate in the lead up to this election and uh, I think the outcome is far from certain. It's been great to speak with you today Mark. Go well. Thanks Andrew. If you've enjoyed How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamwee.